Hey guys, and welcome to the Family Business Indaba podcast. We are the voice of African family business, promoting generational wealth and generational legacies. And my name is Susan Tendi. And I am Nika Amani. And we're going to be taking you through the journey of African family business. So good afternoon, everyone, or good morning um, in the U.S. or other places. Um, thank you for joining us uh, on today's panel discussion uh, before lunch. We have the speakers of this morning. Uh, we're still waiting for Roland to join. So welcome, Professor Adele Barrent, uh, who's currently um, quite far from us, but she's an, she's an old South African, not an old as in physically, but uh, she's an ex-South African. And Kornay Mankis, welcome. Uh, thank you for a very interesting presentation and the same for Dr. Unity. Thank you very much. I assume you're sitting in Botswana. And um, I want to welcome you and thank you for a very interesting presentation. So I would like to start, perhaps, um, Adele, I can start with you and then Kornay and then Unity. Um, how important do you think branding is? Uh, in the family business field. And, and what I mean by that, how important do you think uh, it is for a family business to market itself as a family business? And do you think that the type of industry will have an influence on that? Uh, you specifically presented on the wine farm, but do you think uh, because of family business heterogeneity, it might not be a good idea in other industries? So, uh, I know you're a, a brand expert and a marketing expert. So uh, how important do you think it is for family businesses to brand themselves over a long period of time? Thank you, Elmarie. Um I, I think it all, I think you're a right you're hundred percent right when you talk about the fact that it varies from industry to industry. I think when we start talking about the wine industry as we've seen, we were both surprised by how short term many of those family businesses were, which are which then limits the extent to which they can appeal to heritage. Um, yet there are other products, and, and I'm thinking here we have uh, Zeta olive oil, which appeals to the fact that it has family heritage. Yet I think that there might be other in instances where family heritage might not be so important. Um, but I think it be can, be ca it can serve as a very important positioning factor. Now, in our model, we had positioning which is relative to competitors, which is not necessarily the same as the market position. But, I mean, we're getting technical here. But I, I think it becomes an important driver. Um, whether it should be in the name of the business, I don't know. I think it varies again from industry to industry, but I, I think, that, and I, but I think it's more than just heritage. I think a lot of research has been done on, oh well, it's the family heritage, and I think there's more to it than that. Um, so in some other work I'm doing, we're looking at at family issues relating to knowledge transfer within the family as a branding factor, because knowledge becomes a very important thing too. It's not just about, oh, well, we're all sharing the same surname or we, it's my father, it's my uncle. It's do I know anything? Um, because some industries require that. So I, I would argue that there is a contextual nature to that. That's a very good point, Adele. I agree with you. Um, Kornay, what's your opinion on that? 
Uh, thanks very much um, for that question, Prof. Certainly uh, some, some food for thought. I think, you know, the first one uh, you actually gave us, I think, more like questions. So the first one is, is you know, is, is branding important? And I think in a day and age where people have access to so much information um, and everyone is, is out in, in uh, the social media space specifically, um, I think you cannot afford not to to brand yourself and to try and illustrate what is it that makes you special? What, what is it that makes you unique? If it is your family heritage, what is it about your family heritage? It's not just the fact that you have family heritage. It is what about that family heritage makes it so unique and special. And if there's nothing, then you need to find something else to leverage rather than the family heritage. Um, so that that's sort of just in a nutshell on the one side. On the other question of you know, can, you know, this family heritage, you know, be applied to other industries? Um, and I think it goes back for me to governance. It, it depends on how such a business is governed. Because unfortunately, there has been instances where family and businesses, you know, there's some some negative connotations to that, um, you know, and to that legacy. And, and you don't necessarily want that association to remain. So, you know, if, if you have your governance structures in place whilst being a family business, then I think you can actually um, use that family heritage. But of course, there's always, you know, if there's a family feud, you know, it, there's nothing much you can do about that from a branding perspective and, and the damage is sometimes irreparable. Um, so those are just my thoughts. I don't think it's a clear cut answer, though. Um, but certainly, I think, you know, having having systems and processes and things in place um, to make sure that, you know, your business is about board, you know, then then you can do it. Yeah, I agree with you. And I would uh, like to hear Dr. Unity's perception um, on that now as well, because she spoke specifically on networks. Because if you look at successful generational entrepreneurship practices project, and thank you, Shelley is also joining us. Um, they specifically mentioned that um, two of the familyness resource pools are networking, is networking, but then what Adele said is also knowledge. So I think in industries where that is very important that you transfer that tacit knowledge, that may become a, a, a stronger marketing branding too. And the same with the networks that uh, I would very much like to hear um, Dr. Unity's uh, perception on that because you spoke uh, extensively on the importance of social capital and how important networks are. So, um, Dr. Unity, if I can also ask from your side, how, how do you think uh, important it is for family businesses to brand and market themselves as family businesses? Or do you think there can be a danger in that? Well, my standing is that if it's a family-owned uh, business, it's something that people, the family members should be proud of. So actually keeping the name, perpetuating to future generations, will actually create more than just being known like any other business. It's about preserving the name. What are the customers know you for? What are you good at? What is it that you produce that is unique? So I think keeping the family name is very important. Right. And also, uh, in addition, what are the values that actually are associated with you? When people come to you to buy, what are they buying? Are they buying the name? And if that name should be associated with the product, 
So branding is very important because it actually gives you where you stand as far as the market is concerned. Thank you. I agree with you 100% because we have mentioned that several times over the last three days. For us that specifically working in the family business field, um, we're starting to apply the socio-emotional wealth theory a lot. And uh, I think, uh, Unity, you also referred to the reputation um, of the business and the family, you know, that it's, it's beyond the name. It's about quality. And then Roland also mentioned in his discussion um, the whole issue of, you know, building relationships. And um, I think many of these things, because of their socio-emotional wealth, comes more naturally for a family business than it might come for a non-family business. Um, because they also like to have the reputation of not only focusing on making money, but also, you know, being socially responsible, etc., so I want to ask, Roland is now not on the discussion group, but I would like to hear from all of you, and perhaps um, this time, um, Kornay, we can start with you. Um, do you think that relationship marketing can actually contribute to social capital? Um, yeah, so, so I want to hear from you um, how important a tool's uh, relationship marketing is to contribute to social capital. If we can start with you, then um, Unity, and then Adele. Uh, thank you, Prof. Yes, I, I think certainly it, it makes a big difference uh, because relationship um, marketing actually builds relational capital. And that relational capital is strongly associated with social capital because you are able to engage with and, and create some kind of a mutual understanding with your stakeholders when you are, are building these relationships. Um, you are able to also build the capital at the same time. So, yeah, that, that is my view. And unity? And understanding who your customers are, what they want, is uh, the beginning of uh, the marketing essence in that if you don't know who they are, how you relate to them, what sort of relationships have you built with them, and, for example, you want to have a repeat customers, you need to start from understanding them. So you, if relationship marketing is very important. Thank you. And Adele? Um, yeah, I obviously agree with, with what Cornet and Unity had to say. I, I would also like to just put two spins on it. And one is I think it depends whether you're selling products or service and FMCG product type things um, because it's well known that when you deal with FMCG type products, the, the potential for relationship building is a whole lot less. Um, I always talk about the toilet paper. Um, <laughs> as, a, as a great example of a product where we have little, if any, relationship on the customer end. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a very important thing when Unity talks about the customer. I think that in that instance, the B2B customer becomes front and center uh, um, and the focus. But I think more and more as our industries move to being service industries and our economies move to being service economies, that's where the relationship thing comes in because most of us don't really I don't know if we connect sometimes as much with the, with the toilet paper company rather than we connect with pick and pay or checkers or whoever's selling that particular because of the service that it's providing. So I, I think there's a, there's a, there's, there's different and thereby there are different levels of relationships. And I think mm-hmm. that that's because there are customers who we're not going to do anything with. Um, if I may, that is a very good point. Cornelia, you would like to add? Yes. Yeah, so, so, um, 
I think that is when we look at relationship marketing, specifically focusing on on one relationship, and that is with the customer. But of course, we have relationships mm-hmm. with many other stakeholders, and, and that's why I use the word stakeholder, um, because there, there's other Absolutely. people at play, there's other organizations at play here. And I think relationship marketing has extended itself, actually, to, uh, to include relationships with other stakeholders as well. So when you go into the public space, even if your communication is geared towards your customer, Customer, someone else is seeing it, and that person may be an employee, it may be uh, the media, it may be government supplier, etc. etc. So, um, you know, I think in that instance, it becomes ever so much more important to look at how we build our relationships, the levels of relationships that we may have, want to have, need to have, um, and, and who really has sort of an influence on our organization. Um, I agree. Um, um, I see Roland have joined. So I don't know, Roland, if you um, can hear us or can join us. But in the meantime, I would like to hear from from um, our panel. We, we're talking a lot about customers and we have heard a lot about social capital and relationship marketing. But I think a, a challenge in a family business is the whole issue of employees because you often sit with very competent non, non-family employees and, um, you know, they actually bring in so much and they can actually enhance your social capital and everything inside your business, the knowledge and the expertise. But how do you keep on motivating and build relationships with um, non-family employees Um if they actually have in the back of their mind that all the key positions, hello, Roland, um, I would also like you to, to, I will give you, uh, did you hear the question? Yeah, and I would specifically like to start with Roland because I think he in- emphasized that whole relationship marketing. But how do you build relationships and networks with non-family employees specifically knowing that the key positions will most probably go to family members. So, Roland, if we can start with you, that will be great. Um, and then go to Adele. Um, how do you think one can actually nurture that? Sure. So, um, what my research found was that um, uh, uh, family businesses uh, in particular, although they, they have very deep relationships, and, and I like the word that uh, uh, Professor Cornell or Dr. Cornell utilized, which is when you look at stakeholder or when you look at relationships, you've got to look uh, from a stakeholder perspective. It's not just relationship with customers, but it's relationship with suppliers, relationship with uh, with employees. Um, and, and by the way, you could actually have a family business that has relationships with suppliers that are also family businesses. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, that network becomes a lot much deeper and uh, more mm-hmm. more complex. Mm-hmm. But coming back to my point is that um, with regards to the employees in particular, the research found that okay. um, family businesses do have deep, long-standing relationship with employees, to some extent even generational, because you could have an employee, a father who is employed by the particular business, his son gets employed, joins the father. The grandson or the granddaughter, um, who is still an employee, by the way, also joins the employee fold. Um, so you you have a family business that has the family business itself has is multi generational in a multi uh, 
in a multi-level context, uh, multi-generational from a shareholding ownership management perspective, but also multi-generational from an employee supplier perspective, uh, if you think about it. Mm-hmm. But one of the fun, one of the shortcomings of the research was that um, despite the long-standing relationships, the lack of formal uh, communication programs. So a lot of family businesses tend to keep their communications with employees informal, um, and they need to transition from that informal state towards that formal state. And I think that transition could actually help family businesses manage their, their employee relationships a, um, a lot better. But obviously, it's also dependent on, on the stage of the business. So if the business is, if the business is, 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 is in its mature phase, then it's natural that such a mature organization becomes such that institution and, and adopts those, those, those policies. That's mm-hmm. my point. I agree with you completely. Adele, um, your perception or view on this and then unity and then Kornai. I think I want to t- tap into something Kornai talked about earlier and she talked about governance. And I think that that's one of the, one of the issues in terms of impacting employees in, in not so much only the legal aspects in terms of governance from a, from a, from a founding foundational legal section, but also governance just in terms of how the business is run. Cause governance could be a, a weekly, um, sh- a meeting in the, in around a cup of coffee or, or, or a something. So when I talk about governance, governance, I think that's one of the, one of the issues, but I think there's also the issue of inclusion and how we treat people. Um, because I think you can treat people as being family members. And we saw that on, on the, on the website. We saw family, non-family members being treated as if they were family members. Um, so on, and, and it was a comment made in our presentation, the problem with the history of many of the employees on the wine farms. Um, and the, the bad reputation perhaps that many have had historically for, for not treating their workers as well as perhaps they could have. Um, and how they've gone, the efforts that they've put in to create schools. One of them had a school. One, they, they, they actually specifically mentioned this inclusionary effort that they were doing to make them feel part of the business. Now, in that particular instance, maybe they will never be in the management of the business. It depends on the, on, on the specific shareholding and stuff. But there's still very much an effort to include them, make them feel a part. And, and that's what struck me in many of the, on many of the websites that we saw. The pictures of the family mem- of the non-family members, the employees, what they were doing, getting their interviews and, and their words and, and incorporating them in the business. Uh, Unity, before I um, go to you, um, Adele, what you said now, I just want to reinforce that because that came out the last three days um, as well when we talked about COVID. Mm. Um, That is that uh, for many family businesses, they actually build a much closer relationship with their non-family employees because Mm. they didn't lay them off they didn't take dividends themselves and they really tried to protect the families working in the business. And I agree with you, you know, it's like building a family culture. And, and I think that is what, uh, as they said too, um, mm. the, the, the largest auto farmers in South Africa and they also, they, they are still a family business, but they don't market themselves as such. They say they have a family culture. So, Every single person that works in the business 
and on the farm, family, yeah. Mm. So I think um, the family culture is promoted and not so much the the business family or the family business's um, reputation. Mm. So Unity, your perspective on that, and then uh, please, Cornel, also if you can comment on that. The relationship uh, between the family uh, business owners and the employees, from what I found out, especially after the COVID, there are some family um, business owners who actually made it a point that their employees join medical aid fund and they actually paid for that just because they felt that the employees are suffering because many uh, their family members were getting sick and they were not able to help themselves. And the second thing I found out is that they actually assisted them in paying fees for their children, especially when they were uh, like one member of the family is being laid off. They actually assisted them somewhere buying them groceries. So they actually value the relationship is beyond contractual employment relationship. Thank you. That is a very good point. Thank you, uh, Prof. Yes, uh, perhaps I can just, you know, highlight some of the things the colleagues have been saying because I I agree with everything, but there's certain things that's standing out for me, uh, and that is the culture that you create. Uh, and I think um, uh, Roland spoke a- about, you know, the communication that used to be, you know, or, or perhaps is still quite informal, and it's sort of taken for granted. And I think when you start building a culture of you know, transparency, communication, and inclusion, um, as, as Adal said, you know, when you, when you have those pillars sort of as a foundation in your culture, you will immediately create, um, a scenario where your employees will feel part of something bigger than just working, um, you know, in a, in a job. Of course, having said that, some of the things that, of course, will help is things like profit sharing. Um, know you know it, when when something is going well when the business is doing well um certainly that can can be a very big motivator for for these employees to really buy into um this family business or then this culture of a family culture instead of saying you know we're a family business it is yet another good point so i want to end with the last question and perhaps uh dr unity if we can start with you um, I want to hear where do you see research gaps in terms of um, relationship marketing, um, in terms of social capital and uh, branding in in and in your field. What did you pick up? Where is a lot more research needed uh, that came out from your own research that you presented this morning? So, if we perhaps can start with you um, identifying particular research gaps in the African continent, and then I'll move on to Professor Barrett. Uh, speaking specifically from my research on social capital, I feel that there is no understanding. What is it? Is it a social phenomenon? Is it an economic phenomenon? And if it is between, how do we make it compatible between the two? And the second thing, since it is not something that can be enforced. It's personal. My relationship with you, Elmer, can actually be part of social capital. But the thing is, how do I make it a point that you have got the same understanding uh, with me on that same relationship? And also, how do we measure social capital since it is embedded in individuals and also it's not a public good? 
That is a very good point because um, I can perhaps just mention to you, we have a doctoral student that's hopefully finishing up this year and she worked with financial planning businesses. So it's a completely different field. But uh, she specifically split social capital into three subcategories. Um, I can't remember all of them. It was relational capital, network capital, and I think cognitive capital. And I realized actually that social capital is a lot more complex actually think so um, that is a very good point um, and also considering the socio-emotional wealth theory because that latches on that explains a lot of the social capital relationships it works etc so thank you so much for your contribution on that professor barrett and then uh, dr kunai and then i'll end with roland i, I think Two things that are, that, stru- that struck me, and it was a, a, a con- conversation that was held at the start of the conference, and that is the the models. Um, and I think that there's there's very limited in the line. I mean, there's there's some there's some models around, but a lot of them have not been tested very rigorously, um, and I think a lot of them have not been applied in a in a in cross cultural contexts. And I just use that in its broad sense because I I do think that there's more than you know. To, to try and apply and to try and figure out the robustness of that that particular model, and I'm I'm thinking about ours um, as I'm talking. But I think there's a second thing, and this will probably pop up this afternoon, and that has to do with the publication possibilities. I think that's a further huge challenge because um, whether we like it or not, that's the next the, the next outcome. And that isn't always so easy because what lands up happening is a lot of your editors will say to you, "We'll send it to a regional journal," and then the value and the robustness that you have gone through the work of testing doesn't disseminate in the way. So to me, those are the two major gaps I see um, at the moment. And Adele, I hope you will join us because I think uh, there's many specific challenges, um, you know, in family business research. But overall, as you say, I think it's becoming harder and harder to publish in accredited journals, but um, specifically if you have qualitative research, you know, we find it very difficult to publish good quality research and then it takes forever. Uh, and I think that's one of the challenges. So I would very much, if you can join us this afternoon, you and Cornet and, and Unity, if you can join us, that would be great. So, um, Dr. Mankis, uh, on your side, um, any research gaps that you have identified? Uh, so I think perhaps just from, from our research, uh, one of the things is perhaps the use of multiple channels um, for branding purposes. So I think they, you know, there's a lot of insights that we can still gain from there, you know, what can be done, what, what is being done, what is not being done, you know, and how can we really help these, um, you know, family businesses really just, you know, expand their branding efforts. Thank you so much for that. And uh, Roland, um, Mr. Uburu, are you there? Uh, yes, yeah, I am. If um, we can end with you in terms of, I know you're a business owner and uh, you're also a very strong researcher and uh, well-qualified in academia. So where do you see, uh, particularly in your field, where do you see gaps for future research and in that way, also contributing to the African context, um, where have you seen some gaps? Yeah, um, I, I think the gaps that I've seen from a business, uh, well, one, I, I just want to put on my academic hat very quickly and touch on a point that Dr. Unity touched on, which is around social capital. It may be interesting or insightful to find or to conduct some research as to 
uh, the social capital or the level of social capital that exists um, from a generational perspective. And by that, I mean, um, yeah. is social capital sort of strongest in the second generation versus third generation? And all of it, obviously, is centered around family business. So uh, the second generation family business owners have a much stronger, deeper uh, social capital construct than uh, a second generation, first generation. I suspect, intuitively, I suspect so, but it would be good to substantiate that with some with some research. Um, that is a sec- very very good point. Yeah. Um, then the second point, um, um, uh, but however, uh, prof- um, um, it uh, as conceptual as that may sound. I suspect it to be complex to research because the, gen- the longer the generation in- involved in a business, you and I know that the more complex the issues are um, and those complexities have a way of, of affecting that social capital that Dr. Unity is, is, is sort of referring to. Yeah, so it may be a lot more easier to test and 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 um, in a first generation because the issues are, are are such first generation such, but third generation will be much more complex than fourth. Mm-hmm. Then my last point is that perhaps maybe some more d- drill down research could be done around marketing that are sector specific. Uh, by mm-hmm. that I mean that you could find that you know family businesses that are in the sort of manufacturing uh, sector, there are specific money um, marketing strategies that are unique to them Mm. um, that are different uh, or differentiated to family businesses that are in, for instance, construction. Um, You know, I would like to believe that the construction guys are unique and they think differently and hence perhaps maybe the marketing strategies that they adopt in that sector could be could be different. Thank you. Colleagues, all I can say to conclude is there's so much research to do and so little time left to do it. (laughs) I want to really from the bottom of my heart thank all the presenters and the panelists today. Uh, I think we can talk for another hour on this topic or these topics. So I want to really thank you. It's been wonderful having you on. And for the attendees, you can find the recordings, the profiles, the contact details on the website. So thank you so much. And we hope to see you back this afternoon. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you, Elmarie. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.